3: It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I dot com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply.
4: I, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. There was blood splatter everywhere. I looked at Melissa and I screamed at her. I said, who did this? And she said, Bill did it. And
5: what did you think when you heard that?
4: Well, we knew a couple Bills.
5: I'm Leah Rothman. This is The Real Killer. Episode two, The Hunt is On. On April 27th, 1982, around 10.45 a.m., Metro PD officers are dispatched to the scene of what they're told is a cutting at the rear apartment of 1418 Farrar Street in the St. Louis working-class neighborhood of Hyde Park. Police descend on this cool spring morning to find a truly horrific scene. 35-year-old Joanne Tate is found face down on the floor, partially clothed, Beaten, stabbed, and sodomized with a four foot broom handle. Close by are her daughters. Four year old Renee is found in her bed, bleeding from her neck, which has been cut. And seven year old Melissa is found in her bed, directly across from Renee. She's been stabbed several times and sliced from her rectum to her vagina. This is Melissa today, talking to me not far from that very home.
6: There were police and EMTs, and the house was suddenly full, and I felt very naked and ashamed. I remember a fireman carrying me. He wrapped me in my mother's blanket. I also remember there was this blue sky. It was the prettiest day I'd ever seen. He told me everything was going to be okay. He put me on a stretcher. I said, there's only two ambulances. Which one is my mom going to be in? He said, she's going to go in a different one. And I just knew I was not going to be around my
5: mom again. At 11.02 a.m., Joanne Tate is pronounced dead at the scene. Her daughters are rushed to Cardinal Glennon Hospital, about five miles away. Melissa's condition is serious. Renee is critical. She's unable to speak, so Melissa becomes investigator's only eyewitness. With a depraved killer on the loose, police have no time to waste.
6: They kept asking me questions. I just remember wanting to be left alone if I wasn't being poked and prodded, IVs, and people checking my heart and looking at my body. I think it was worse than the doctors expected, the wounds. And at the time, they had already looked at Renee. I know she was worse. They didn't expect either one of us to make it, though. And I was worried. I was worried this man was going to come to the hospital because I knew he had left. I knew he was out there. I was terrified.
5: Back at the apartment, detectives start assessing the scene. And it's a crime scene like they've never seen before. Investigator Quinn O'Brien, who would later work on the case, describes the horror. This crime scene was was really bad. Uh,
7: There was blood everywhere. The house looked tumbled. The whole scene just looked tumbled, like there was a fight. There was blood on things in the house, cups, tables, and blankets, blood on the walls and blood on the floor. It was ugly.
5: I have to say, I have seen a lot of crime scene photos in my day, and these are by far the worst. It's not just the amount of blood everywhere that's so shocking. It's the viciousness that comes through in the photos, the carnage, the barbaric nature of what happened in that home to Joanne and her young daughters. It is so disturbing. Police start collecting evidence. The railroad-style apartment consists of three main rooms, basically in a row. It's well-lived in. Bright blue shag carpeting, an eclectic collection of furniture, children's toys and clothes strewn about and walls decorated with tapestries of the Last Supper and the Pink Panther, next to photographs of family members and John Travolta. On the floor in the girls' room, which is in the center of the apartment, police find a steak knife. In the front room, which is also Joanne's bedroom, they find a blood-stained butcher knife on the heater, a blood-streaked steak knife on the floor, and another steak knife in the center of Joanne's bed. That knife is completely coated in blood, bent in a half-moon shape with a partially broken wood handle. There's one crime scene photo from Joanne's room that haunts me the most. It's of her bed. The sheets are soaked with blood. And just above that, on the headboard, inches away from where Melissa was brutally attacked, in little dime-store adhesive letters written out is the phrase, I'm a lover, not a fighter. In the kitchen, police find, and I'm reading directly from the police report, quote, A wooden holder with six slots for knives and five were missing. Here's Quinn again. They collected all of the knives. Uh,
7: They took Joanne's diary and address book. They took the blankets, uh, and they took hairs off of those blankets. They did take some fingerprints and some partial fingerprints.
5: Fingerprints, which are found on a knife, a cardboard toilet paper roll, and a storm door frame, as well as a palm print found on a plastic cup. They also take numerous blood samples and eventually nail scrapings from Joanne.
7: There was something, there was a hatchet that Joanne Tate kept under her mattress.
5: Police find a hatchet between Joanne's mattress and box spring. And next to it, something bizarre. A Hustler magazine opened to the page titled, Slaughter of the Innocents. We'll actually hear more about this magazine later. But the bigger question is, why was Joanne hiding a hatchet? Who? was she afraid of? Police see no signs of forced entry. They interview Joanne's upstairs neighbor, who says around 4 a.m., while she and her husband were asleep, she was awakened by a loud banging noise. But it stopped soon after. The woman can't offer any other details, but investigators at least now have an approximate time of the attack. 4 a.m. Then police meet another neighbor, 17-year-old Steve Yancey. He lives at 1411 Farrar, just across the street from Joanne and a couple of doors down. Steve Yancey actually came to the scene
7: that morning to see what was going on, saw the police tape and uh, talked to detectives that morning. And I know that Steve Yancey provided the police with a lot of information, just contextual information about Joanne what was going on in her life, the men that she had been seeing and dating. He mentioned Tom Schultz, Joanne's most recent ex.
5: Steve Yancey has a lot to say about 24-year-old Tom Schultz. Steve says, and this is all documented in the police report, that Joanne had kicked Tom Schultz out after she caught him cheating on her. And Tom told him, quote, he was going to get her. Then a month before the murder, Tom says it again, quote, I'm definitely going to get her. According to Steve Yancey, Joanne was afraid of Tom coming back to hurt her, so she would ask Steve to stay from time to time overnight with her and the girls. Maybe she had that hatchet in case Tom Schultz came knocking. But other names aside from Tom and Steve are quickly emerging. Johnny Davis
7: was another suspect davis was involved in this bar fight and joanne was expected to be a witness in this case Uh, she never took the stand to testify but she started to keep a diary and in her diary she wrote if anything happens to me i'm going to keep a record i'm trying to remember the um i have the the
5: actual um hold on one sec oh my god you have the diary Well, I don't have the physical diary. That's probably in some box deep in a police warehouse. But I have the evidence photos, which include all of the pages from Joanne's handwritten diary. On the first page, she says, I'm only writing all this down in case something would happen to me. You would know who to look for. People I was with. Exclamation point. I mean, it's just so eerie. Yeah, and
7: it's, um, it's as if she predicted her own death.
8: Your tax refund belongs to you, not an identity thief. Over $6 billion in tax refunds were flagged by the IRS for possible identity theft in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Let LifeLock help you protect your financial information so all you have to worry about is what to do with your tax refund. Go to LifeLock.com iHeart and save up to 25% your first year. That's 25% off at LifeLock.com iHeart. Identity theft protection starts here.
9: Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other. As Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury
5: At Cardinal Glennon Hospital, while still in the ER, Melissa and Renee's 17-year-old sister, who had been at her boyfriend's, rushes to their side. We've been asked not to use her name. Here's Melissa again.
6: And I'm naked on a table in front of people, and my sister is asking me who did it. And I said, Bill. And I said it over and over. And her face... There was so much in her face. And when she asked me questions, her voice cracked. I could tell she was just so scared.
5: Melissa's sister doesn't know who Bill is, but she does wonder about someone else.
6: She asked me about Gary.
5: Gary LaRose, a former boyfriend of Joanne's. When the older sister asks Melissa if Gary did it, To everyone's surprise, Melissa says yes. Then, moments later, Melissa changes her story again and says, they stabbed us. They woke us up about four. They chased mom into the kitchen. This is the first time seven-year-old Melissa is saying anything other than Bill did it. So is it Gary or is it multiple people? Or is Gary one of the multiple people? But before long, Melissa goes back to Bill and adds a new detail. She says during the attack, she heard her mom call the man Bill. So, changing stories, new potential suspects, and maybe multiple perpetrators. And this is all within the first 12 hours. (laughs) The next morning, police are at it again, hoping Melissa can ID a suspect. They show her 10 photos, including ones of Tom Schultz, Gary LaRose, and several Bills, Williams, and Willies known to the family.
6: I did look at, like, a bunch of different pictures. There were people I knew in there that I knew had never done anything to anybody. And I'm like, it's none of these
5: A little later that day, Melissa is interviewed by a social worker at the hospital. It's noted in the police report that Melissa seems, quote, very alert. This time, she remembers even more about Bill. She says that Bill had been to the house on Sunday, then back again on Monday when he stabbed them. She says that in May 1981, Almost a year before the murder, she and her mother had gone to this person's house, and at the time, he was driving a yellow car. And she remembers even more. What I told them was, this person had a lot of animals. A cat and four kittens. She even remembers there were two males and two females. And it's during this interview that four-year-old Renee speaks for the first time, saying, quote, Bill did it. Bill said he wouldn't cut us, but he cut us anyway. I should note that although Renee survived the attack, sadly she passed away at the age of 31. We'll talk more about this in a later episode. Three days after the attack, on April 30th, Melissa is shown more photos of potential suspects. Eleven this time— mostly all bills, some of which she'd been shown before. Again, Melissa picks no one out as the perpetrator. At this point, police are looking at everyone in and around Joanne's world, even her brother Nat, who found them that morning, Joanne's other brother, Daniel, and Joanne's boyfriend at the time, Jerry. Here's Nat again.
4: They treated you like like you're a suspect. You are. They took my fingerprints right away in... Uh, and they just interrogated me. I know they didn't get much because I I couldn't say much because I don't know much. I I just know that what I what I found. We were all trying to figure out who it was, but there's a part, you know. And we thought that like Joanne, you know, uh, could have been Raymond, could have been Johnny Davis, it could have been Raymond's brother or John or somebody. Somebody we they said it's Gary Paris. Uh, so we didn't know who it was.
5: Police are having about as much luck as Nat in figuring out who did this. Then, on May 4th, one week into the investigation, two significant things happen. First, police track down Joanne's ex-boyfriend, Tom Schultz, who claims he has an alibi. He was in Texas at the time of the attack. But detectives will still need to verify that. The other is that there's a new lead detective assigned to the case. Homicide veteran detective Joe Burgoon. Nicknamed Father Homicide and the Blue Knight, Burgoon has investigated thousands of murders in the St. Louis area. Well-respected within the department, the then 43-year-old quiet, green-eyed legend with a photographic memory has been described by a former colleague as someone who's almost too nice for this dirty business. Regardless, he's determined to solve the case.
10: When this case started, that was on vacation. And when I came back to work, my boss called me in the office and he said, you know, these uh, these guys are really, it's really messed up. You know, they really, really shook up over it, messed up over it. He says, you got a bunch of kids. You know, know, know you're not dealing with kids and stuff like that. So that's why we wound I wound up with it in my partner, you know, because we just, uh, we we talked it over. I said, you know, we're not going to ask him any questions. So we just went up there and met them, and uh, we bring them, we bring them a little bag of m each one of them, and we tell jokes and stuff like that, kid, kid stuff, you know how they do. How the children are. And Melissa was a very smart child; she really was. I told Julian's brother Dan, and I told him from the start, I said, "This is, we're going to be, you know, we're going to we're going go buy the book. We're not going to do anything, and it's just the way it's supposed to be done."
9: 2025 QX80 coming this summer.
0: Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series,
7: Expats.
1: I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough
6: of Joe is me laying in this hospital bed and he showed me his badge he was really tall he was very nice I didn't think I could trust him but he did explain he was there to find the person who hurt my mommy and me and my sister so I tried to help
5: In the May 4th police report, it's noted that Melissa was, quote, in great pain and was given a pain pill. However, she was very alert. Burgoon, the social worker and a child psychologist also interview Melissa. Melissa tells them that last summer at Hyde Park, she and her mom and her sister met a man who was sitting on a bench. He said his name was Bill. Melissa describes him as having black hair all the way to his ears. Then she says more. Bill is a skinny white man with black short hair who looked older than Tom Schultz.
6: I remember telling them that we went over a bridge.
5: Melissa tells them they went over a bridge to get to Bill's house. And Bill didn't live alone. Bill lived with his mother and across the street was a park with swings animal playground equipment, monkey bars, and a merry-go-round. Bill gave them sodas. They spent the night and slept upstairs. The next day, Bill drove them home in an old yellow taxi. And there's more.
6: I told them that Bill had went to Hollywood and that Bill drove a Volkswagen and Bill had worked on my mom's car. And that Bill's mom drank a lot, and she is not very nice.
5: Melissa also says that on the night of the attack, Bill called her and Renee by name. Detective Burgoon shows Melissa 13 photos of, again, mostly Bill's, and also throws in a Polaroid of Steve Yancey, their 17-year-old neighbor. Melissa says none of the bills are the guy, and Steve Yancey, he's a friend and wasn't involved either. The next day, Tom Schultz's alibi in Texas is verified. He takes a polygraph test and passes. Police are at a loss and are no closer to solving the case. The case that has changed everything.
6: I just remembered one day everything was normal, and then we, I lost my home, and my animals, my mom. Our bodies weren't the same, everything changed. I don't know if you know this, but I was not allowed to attend my mother's funeral. I actually watched it from my hospital room. How did you watch it
5: from your, it I was had, on TV?
6: Yeah, I didn't get to say goodbye to her. I was so upset. People I didn't even know getting, going in and out of that church. And I was her daughter, and I'm watching it from a hospital bed. I didn't get to
5: go. Two weeks after the attack, on May 11th, 12 more photos are shown to Melissa. She again IDs none of them as their attacker. That same day, Detective Burgoon and another detective check Melissa and Renee out of the hospital to search for the bridge and park Melissa described in her statement about the overnight at Bill's house. After hours of driving over bridges and circling various parks, they call it a day. Melissa recognizes none of them. Police are beyond stumped and frustrated as the public pressure to solve the case is mounting. So on May 18th, they enlist the help of a Metro PD sketch artist. A couple of days later, that composite sketch is released to the public. Melissa's family sees it on the evening news. Here's her uncle Nat again.
4: My brother Daniel and my sister uh, Abby, when they saw the the, the sketch, they they said, it looks like somebody we know. It looks like somebody we
5: know. The next day, Daniel Clenny and Abby Adams go down to the police station and tell Detective Bergoon exactly that. Together, they go through Joanne's 1981 diary, her diary from the year before the murder. And that's when they see a name. Rod. There are five entries Joanne made about Rod, no last name. Two of them are particularly important to detectives. The first one says, quote, Rod, telephone 638-8721. St. Louis, also bartender, smart, likes hickeys. Seen Rod Sunday night. The next entry says, quote, Met Rod 15 of April with Dan, cottage, Leo,
6: black hair, brown eyes, five foot seven, tight
5: jeans, truck driver, Ohio, sexy person, (laughs) likes to make love. Police still don't have a last name, but they do have a phone number.
3: So he's
10: only called. Call the house, I guess his mother answered and said, is Rodney there? said, no, he's not. And then uh, they said, what's Rodney's last name? And so we found out what his name was.
5: His name is Rodney Lincoln. Burgoon runs his name and sees that he has a record. Five years before, he was convicted of second-degree burglary. But alarm bells go off when Burgoon learns about his other conviction. In 1973, Lincoln was convicted of second-degree murder. Detective Burgoon takes Lincoln's mugshot and a photo of a distant family member of Joanne's to Melissa and Renee to see if they can pick out their mother's killer. Melissa does this.
10: She picks out Rodney Lincoln. Uh, And I said, are you sure? She said, that's him. I said I, his name's not Bill. She kept saying, "That's him. That's him." Very emphatic. And I asked her twice. I asked her three or four times. Are you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure? That's him.
5: After that, according to the police report, Renee says nothing but looks at the photos, throws Rodney's on the table, and covers her face with her hands. On May 23, 1982, almost a month after the attack, Detective Burgoon and a sergeant make their way to 8116 Minnesota Avenue in South St. Louis. That's where 37 year old Rodney Lincoln lives with his mother.
10: We could line to Rodney's house and get Carter to park the in the house. There's a miracle around where horses are.
5: It looks like the park Melissa had described with swings, animal playground equipment, monkey bars, and a merry-go-round.
12: We had actually been at Wilmore Park fishing that morning.
5: Kay Lincoln, Rodney Lincoln's daughter, who was 13 at the time, is also there that day.
12: We came home in the afternoon, and at that time, Grandma told Dad that this policeman call, wanted him to call him back. So he said, no problem. He called him back, gave him his information, talked to him. He went out to start the barbecue. Um, my sister was out there with him.
5: Kay's younger sister, Kelly, was 10 at the time. I remember what I had on. <laughs> I had on blue shorts and a pink shirt with a flower on it. Here's Kay again.
12: DJ, my dad's girlfriend, and I were sitting in the living room playing cards. And I looked up, well, my grandma's dog started barking. And I saw these two guys go walking past the front door towards the backyard and they had on suits. And that just really blew me away because nobody comes to my grandma's house wearing a suit. And I said to DJ, I said, who is that? She said, I don't know. And I, you know, just being a flippant teenage kid, I'm like, I don't trust guys in suits.
5: Kay and Kelly watched the suits talk to their dad for a few minutes. Then they all turned to go. Here's Kelly again. I remember um, Dad
12: talked to him for a little bit, and then Dad said that he had to go downtown and talk to these men, that he would be back in a little bit to take us home and kiss me on the top of the head and said, I'll see you in a little bit. Angel. He he always called me his little angel with horns. He just got in a car and left with him. My grandma was just she was just shell-shocked my grandma was terrified and you could see that in her face and nobody would tell us what was going on we had no clue and that night we're watching Hill Street Blues as you know Sunday night nine o'clock channel (laughs) four and after Hill Street Blues it was ten o'clock news and it was bedtime on the last commercial break of the program The news broke in with what's coming at 10 o'clock and they had a big banner going across the screen that said million dollar bail. And they said, murderer arrested. And they showed a video of our dad. And his hands are behind his back. And there's a detective, the ones that came to grandma's house that you didn't trust and now you know you shouldn't have. He just looked like he didn't know what just hit him. And he just never
5: came back. Next time on The Real Killer. When you drank, did you have a temper?
10: I could go from having a great time to ready to really hurt somebody.
5: And Rodney's previous murder convictions not helping. I thought that, you know, that just reinforces he's a killer. If he killed once, what's going to stop him from killing again? But putting the bad man behind bars isn't the end of it.
6: I never felt safe or secure.
5: I always felt like I was being watched. The Real Killer is a production of AYR Media and iHeartRadio, hosted by me, Leah Rothman. Executive Producers Leah Rothman and Aliza Rosen for AYR Media. Written by me, Leah Rothman. Senior Associate Producer, Eric Newman. Editing and Sound Design by Cameron Tagge. Mixed and Mastered by Cameron Tagge. Audio Engineering by Jesus C. Mario. Studio Engineering by Tom Weir and Kelly McGrew. Voice Acting Performed by Lauren Pritchard. Legal Counsel for AYR Media, Gianni Douglas. Executive Producer for iHeartRadio, chandler mays if you're enjoying the real killer tell your friends about it and leave us a review on apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts
9: infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 infinity qx80